This podcast is brought to you by BetterHelp and Magic Spoon. Well, welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at The Bulwark, and I am joined by two of our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and The Wall Street Journal, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. My Bulwark colleague, Will Salatin, is sitting in this week for Damon Linker, and our special guest this week is Zach Beecham of Vox. Welcome, one and all. We are looking forward to a good discussion today of Iowa, New Hampshire, and the great suspense about who the Republican nominee may possibly be. Uh, Sorry. All right. So, (laughs) So we did have low turnout in Iowa. It was the lowest turnout of the last several seasons. Very understandable. The weather was atrocious. But impossible to know whether it was the weather, which after all, Iowans are accustomed to, or whether it was lack of enthusiasm. In any event, a huge amount of commentary attention was paid to 110,000 Republicans who traipsed to uh, gyms and churches to participate in this thing. And Trump won with a little over half the vote. So... I'm going to start with you, Linda. First of all, do we pay too much attention to Iowa? I mean, should it be retired? Yes. Yeah, President Santorum and President Huckabee and all those people can testify to President Cruz can testify to its importance. <laughs> um, arguably, it mattered for Barack Obama in 2008, uh, but the Democrats are no longer even doing it. So your views. I think we pay way too much attention. It is a very unrepresentative state of the country at large. It is, however, a good representative of Donald Trump's base. Uh, It is evangelical. It's predominantly white. Uh, Very few minorities and the ones who are there are mostly concentrated in some of the cities. And I think that um, the very fact that Iowa has in in past years gotten so much significance in the presidential races, I think is not good for our politics. And I really believe the Democrats made the wiser decision uh, to go with South Carolina first, a much more representative state of the country. It has lots of rural voters as well, lots of Republicans, but it also has a much more diverse population, which reflects the U.S., There are also some weird issues that Iowans care about. Ethanol has always been a very big concern uh, among Iowa voters, although apparently not Donald Trump's not being very enthusiastic about ethanol. That did not seem to hurt him. Uh, I don't think we should be surprised at the outcome. I think there were many of us never-Trumpers who still consider ourselves on the conservative end of the spectrum who would have liked to see, for example, Nikki Haley come out second. She was edged out by Ron DeSantis, and that at least has kept his campaign on life support, though it's not clear how much further he can go. And he seems to be, you know, basically skipping uh, New Hampshire. We'll see whether Haley survives. It'll all depend on New Hampshire. Zach, one of the things that we see now in American politics is the create your own adventure or create your own reality, rather. So Nikki Haley was um, trending in the polls in the days before the caucuses, and there was speculation maybe she'd come in second. So in her speech on the night of the caucus, she's she says, well, it's now a two-person race, as if, you know, she just took the text of the speech that she was going to deliver if she had come in second and just read it anyway, even though she came in third. But that much having been said, She's not wrong, right? I mean, Ron DeSantis really doesn't have a path. She doesn't either. We'll get to that later. But what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I was about to say what you were just hinting at. Like, it's a one-person race. It's a, one-person right? it's, it's a Donald Trump race. Yeah. And then there's the the sort of various different people jockeying for other different positions, whatever it is they want out of running, 
right? And it's like it's some of them are very clear, some of them are opaque. But I think it's correct to say, as Haley did, that DeSantis is cooked. He's pulling negligibly in New Hampshire and South Carolina, the next two states. He invested huge amounts of resources in Iowa, only to come in a very, very, very distant third, uh, second place. Excuse me. I mean, people talk about this as if DeSantis won, but actually he got a little over 20% of the vote. Donald Trump got an outright majority, right? This is yeah. not a win for an Iowa first candidacy. It's it's a declaration. Uh, I mean, forget declaration. It's an obituary, right? That that looks kind of like a second place finish. So uh, the DeSantis campaign is soldiering on. Um, there's a funny line where a Republican funder was asked about his claim that he earned a ticket out of Iowa, and the funder said something like, "I, I wish I knew who it was." It's anonymous. Said, uh, "You know, it's a coach ticket. It's a steerage oh. ticket." And yeah, you know, <laughs> I, I think that's and basically right. And it's to Tallahassee. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's done. He's done. He's done. His his campaign is over for actually a lot of interesting reasons. Like there's a lot to say about why Ron DeSantis failed. But for now, I think the important thing to note is he's failed and everything else is just sort of playing out the end of a drama whose script has been written. Okay. Well, you know, we can do a little bit of the uh, pre-obituary here of his campaign. What, What do you think are the two or three things that doomed him? So I guess for me, the big thing is that DeSantis was was a product of this like very specific kind of elite conservative, right? I don't mean the quote-unquote GOP elite, the infamous GOP elite that opposes Donald Trump. I mean the sort of counter-elite that has attempted to, to try to make sense out of what Trump has meant and develop a theoretical architecture to incorporate Trump into some vision, some broader philosophical understanding of conservatism, right? These are the sorts of people who find Viktor Orban's uh, government in Hungary appealing, the sort of Christopher Rufo's of the world, right? And and they were really the primary support base, I think, for the DeSantis campaign. They were its theorists, they were its bigots boosters in the conservative press, that and the sort of like anti-anti-Trump cadre. They don't really like Trump, but they don't really want to oppose the Republican Party either. And the problem is that just wasn't where most of the Republican voters were, right? You had some people who really didn't want another Trump-style candidacy, and you had some people who were, well, a majority of people who were really, really pro-Trump. And DeSantis was kind of trying to appeal to both camps, but in the end, he ended up being in this awkward middle where he could reach neither because his support base was just not you know, one that spoke to actual voters on the ground. Will Salatin, I heard one analyst saying that uh, one of DeSantis's mistakes, maybe a big one, was assuming that Republican voters were going to thrill to an even more pure MAGA message than they get from Trump and not recognizing that a huge part of Trump's appeal that DeSantis doesn't approach is the entertainment factor. You know, the show the spectacle. And DeSantis, he has negative charisma, right? So I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, no, I think I think DeSantis <laughs> just doesn't have the personality. And what DeS- I, I think Zach nailed this, which is the misunderstanding of Trump by DeSantis and all the people behind DeSantis, including, you know, his funders, was that there was an idea here, uh, something like you know, national greatness, conservatism, America first, that there and that you could run on that idea without Trump. And what he what he didn't understand was it's a cult, right? It's not about an idea; it's about a man. And if you take the man out, you try to substitute another man who honestly didn't come across as much of a man. That doesn't work. But can I come back to Nikki Haley for a minute? Sure. Uh, and there's a real serious problem that Nikki Haley has here, which is in Iowa. The entrance polls and the Des Moines Register poll both showed that her base is not Republicans. <laughs> She's half of her vote was independents, crossover Democrats. That was true in Iowa. I'm looking at the New Hampshire polls. In New Hampshire, she is beating Trump among the undeclared the people who are coming into that primary. It's an open primary that can help her, but among Republicans, Trump is beating her two to one, three to one, and. You can't win a Republican primary without Republicans. You can't do it, even in the open ones, but Uh, in the closed ones, for sure. Let me just interrupt for one quick sec, Will. Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think it's a completely open primary in New Hampshire. I think if you are a registered Democrat, you cannot vote in the Republican primary. But if you are undeclared, you can register as a Republican that day and vote. 
Um, Correct. You can yeah. you can you you have to change the registration, but you can right. do it. Yeah. And so okay. she, they actually are polling dem people who are self-identified Democrats who are going to vote or in some cases have voted right. in that primary. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You're absolutely right. And not only that, but the polling showed that support for her in Iowa was when it came to voter enthusiasm, it was like underneath the floorboards. I mean, you know, people were clearly sort of saying, well, okay, Haley, because I don't like Trump, which brings me to my question for Bill Galson. Look, I think what everyone has said so far and what we all know is that the Republican Party is pretty far gone. So the Republican Party is, as Will said, it's a cult. And, you know, we know, or, or as Zach said, it's a one-man race. Okay, so that's really not in question. I mean, I wrote a piece about the outcome in Iowa where I talked about the silver lining because 25% said they would not vote for Trump if he's the nominee. That's huge, 25%. We'll get to breaking it down in a second. 11% of them said that they would vote for Biden. Now, that's astounding because Biden has been so thoroughly demonized. And, you know, for, for most Republicans, that's like saying you'd vote for the devil. But there is a significant percentage of Republicans out there who are still anti-Trump. And let's remember that our elections are decided by five states and by narrow margins in five states. And that could be the ballgame. Of course, we still have the third party problem. But anyway, your reaction, Bill. That's a silver lining extracted with extraordinary effort and analytical acumen, you know, from a huge heap of drack. As I wrote in my analytical commentary on this week's results, the Republican Party is the party of Donald Trump. He has, I think, irreversibly displaced the party of Ronald Reagan, which was now reduced to a small fraction of its former dominance. I resist the idea that Donald Trump is simply a contentless cult based on his entertainment value. He is that, but there's content to the cult. He has engineered a profound substantive reorientation of the Republican Party. And I could go down the list of how he's turned Reaganism on its, uh, on its head in all sorts of ways, domestic and foreign, but that would be a waste of time because everybody knows that list. This is a fundamental reorientation, not just of the Republican Party, but of American politics, and he did it. So the question is, what now? Uh, and this is a question we're going to be asking ourselves as a country for a very long time, assuming that we have the luxury of doing it for a very long time. And that is, of course, a question. As for the possible Republican desertion of Trump, I think that possibility is very real. It may, however, be counterbalanced by a possible Democratic desertion of Joe Biden. And that is particularly true if you look at some of the fundamental building blocks of the Biden 2020 coalition. I have in mind Hispanics, young voters, and African-American males. There is a lot of softness in the coalition uh, in all of those areas. Some may simply not vote. Some may opt for third-party candidates. And some, particularly some culturally moderate Latinos, uh, with whom Trump did better in 2020 than he did in 2016 by a seven-point margin, will continue their drift to Donald Trump. I have no idea of how these two weaknesses in the bases of the two presidential contenders will net out, but we have to do double-entry bookkeeping here to see what's going on. Zach, one of the arguments that some of these unbelievably spineless Republicans made in the last, you know, years is, but most particularly in the past, like, six months, when the question was, you know, will you challenge Trump? Will you attempt to prevent him from getting the nomination? And they would say over and over again, you know, well, I mean, he can't win. That's clear. So, you know, that's the argument is that it's the, the Republican Party is nominating a clear loser. The Wall Street Journal editorial page goes on about this pretty much every day. Republicans think again, you know, he can't win a general election. 
Republican voters are looking at polls showing that Trump is neck and neck with Biden or possibly even ahead. And that argument goes right out the window. It's just sort of a very strange kind of argumentation because, like, on the one hand, it is true that Trump has serious electoral liabilities. Yeah. Right? He won in 2016, narrowly, but he won. And then in every previous election where Trump or Trump-supported candidates have been on the ballot, it's very clear that certain elements of of his political persona and approach to politics have turned off a critical slice of voters, including uh, those uh, sort of more moderate Republicans, right, who handed the party key defeats, especially in Senate races and in the 2020 presidential election uh, in states like Arizona. So, I mean, the the aggressive anti-democratic stuff, the stuff that's most objectionable about Trump, I mean, it really does seem to be an electoral drag. On the other hand, Trump has electoral benefits. I do not believe that, let's say, nominee Nikki Haley, were that to actually happen on like Earth 2 or something, would do nearly as well with uh, downscale white collar vote or blue collar voters, excuse me, as Trump does, right? He is a way of connecting on a deep cultural level with a certain slice of the electorate that the traditional Reaganite Republican mold just didn't fit. So it's it's actually kind of hard to say with confidence whether or not Trump would have been a better general election candidate than the other Republicans that were facing him, which is why that argument ultimately failed, right? You need to have some really, really clear-cut evidence that Donald Trump is going to destroy your party if you want to take the party back from Donald Trump, right? If that's going to be the entire thing that you hang your pitch on, like the argument better be damn solid. And it just wasn't. So in the end, Republicans who are in the grip of Trumpism, ordinary voters were just like, I love my guy. And what you're saying about him doesn't appear to be obviously true. So so why would I not vote for the guy who I think I I really think speaks for me? And that's what they did. And that's what they will do. Yeah. Well, before we uh, completely bury uh, DeSantis and Haley, let's mention that she is polling close to him in New Hampshire. You've already described some of the problems with those uh, data. And look, there's an outside chance she could defeat him in New Hampshire. Of course, he will immediately say that that is just proof that the Democrats and the rhino squishes came out for her. And that's more proof of why she's completely unacceptable. Let's say she does pull an upset and she defeats him, which is not out of the question, in New Hampshire. What's the path forward there? The next big contest, Nevada has been completely rigged for Trump. That's a whole other mess where they're having caucuses and a primary two days apart, and it's crazy. And by the way, the the head of the Republican Party has been indicted for being a fake Trump elector. But anyway, and he's still in charge. But um, Why not? Why yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know, then she's she's got to go to South Carolina, and in a normal year, you would say, "Great, she's, she's her home state. She was governor." He's polling thirty points ahead of her, and s- voters in South Carolina are not like voters in New Hampshire, right? Right. Well, Trump is running away with South Carolina. I mean, it, it and. It, It's not like the voters of South Carolina are going to find out something about either Donald Trump or their own former governor that's going to change those numbers. I mean, the the Nikki Haley scenario is that somehow she does so well in New Hampshire that the illusion of, of Trump's invincibility shatters and suddenly Republicans have an epiphany. But as we've all been discussing, there's a genuine attachment here to Donald Trump and what he stands for and what he talks about in the Republican primary. So that that's just not going to happen. And This problem that she has with not winning Republicans and Republican primaries, it's not just a problem directly for her. It's an indirect problem. Donald Trump is already making that point on the campaign trail. He has been in New Hampshire this week saying Nikki Haley is the candidate of Democrats, of liberals, of people crossing over into our primary. That helps him tar her as an alien, as some kind of a Biden stalking horse or whatever. So so that in itself is already making her weaker, not stronger in the primaries that follow. And Mona, she's only got one more that's like New Hampshire, Michigan, where things are open, where she could get another influx of crossover voters. So these primaries are going to be closed and she's going to lose them. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, leave that there. And then I want to turn to another aspect of life in America that Trump has changed dramatically. But first, let us talk a little bit about better help. 
So the new year is upon us, and uh, many people make New Year's resolutions only to find that they fail to keep them. And one reason is that our own thoughts can get in our way. And if you think that you've been engaging in a little self-sabotage in past years, consider better help. Therapy can help very much. It's not just for people with serious trauma or major illness. Uh, we all need a sympathetic, dispassionate listener, someone with experience and perspective who can reassure us that others have the same insecurities, doubts, and fears that we have and have overcome them. Therapy helps us to figure out how our own minds may be holding us back, ruminating about our worries and conflicts or the many balls we're trying to keep in the air at the same time doesn't help. It just contributes to your stress. And self-medicating, like with booze or drugs, is a dead end. Therapy can help unwind your worries and let you be a calmer, happier version of yourself. If you're thinking about starting therapy, BetterHelp is a great option. It's incredibly convenient because it's entirely online, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist and get started. If that therapist is not a good fit, you can switch at any time at no additional charge. It's the gift you give yourself. Make your brain your friend with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash beg to differ today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash beg to differ. And we thank them for sponsoring this podcast. All right. So we have been talking about ways in which Donald Trump has transformed the Republican Party in his own image. One aspect of that that I have also written about, and Zach wrote a really good piece about the threats of violence, because you cannot understand, it seems to me, what's happening in the Republican Party without paying attention. Actual physical fear. I mean, when Trump first came on the scene, it required just political courage to stand up to him. But now it takes physical courage, right, Zach, in some instances? Yeah, during the, the course of this piece, reporting it, putting it together, et cetera, I, I looked at a lot of data, interviewed people who are sort of directly in the metaphorical line of fire, thankfully not the literal line of fire yet. But one of them was um, Stephen Richer, who's a Republican. He's the Maricopa County recorder, which means he's in charge of elections in Arizona's most important county. And he told me the story about how when he first took office, he was sort of obliged to defend the accuracy of the 2020 vote count, right? This was in early 2021. And he kept going to these Republican grassroots events that he had been going to for a long time. And as he went there, you know, he'd been a longtime Republican, right? And as he went there and tried to explain what he was doing, what his job was, and that the elections were on the up and up, the crowds got angrier and angrier. He was pushed, shoved, yelled at in his face. He recalls being his you know, his car, someone coming up to it and slamming on the windshield on his way out of the parking lot. And by the end of it, of this whole enterprise, he no longer felt safe going to these events. Like one of these times, this was going to escalate into, you know, maybe if not somebody seriously hurting him, then at least somewhat hurting him, right? And it certainly set the signal that he wasn't welcome there anymore. So he stopped going to these party events. And to me, Stephen's story, he's still in office, right? It's not that he's left political life, but he's stopped being a force in shaping the direction of the Arizona Republican Party. And the way in which he's been cut out just from physical presence at events, right, the things that determine the party's course, to me is sort of a symbol, a synecdoche for what's been going on in the Republican Party throughout the country. These threats have pushed people in the party either out of its bounds or made them afraid to speak up. It's not the only reason that's been true, right? I think probably electoral considerations matter a lot more than physical safety ones for public officials. But the safety stuff matters too. And it means that there's this extra disciplinary force in the Republican ranks preventing a break with Trump, or at least limiting the ability of there to be a counterfaction that supports democracy inside the Republican ranks. In a way that's like, it's not just here the, the effect and the consequences, it's the way in which it's being accomplished through threats of violence that should really disturb all of us. Because that's not how politics is supposed to work in a stable, healthy democracy. And the fact that 
there is such an influence, right? There is evidence that violence is really changing the way our election, our elected officials behave should, should be a, like a really bright red warning sign for the future and the health of American democracy. Linda, after Mitt Romney voted the first impeachment to impeach Trump, being the first person in American history, first senator in American history to vote to impeach the president of his own party, he chose to get personal security at the cost of $5,000 a day for himself and his family because of the threats. He is in a position to afford that. Most people aren't. Mm-hmm. You know, from the very beginning of the Trump entry on the scene, uh, it was obvious to some of us that a person who encourages violence at his rallies, who says, you know, take him out, I'll pay your legal bills, that guy, I want to punch him in the face, etc. That sends a signal, and it's unbelievably dangerous and corrupting, and everybody said, oh, you just don't like his mean tweets. Yeah, it's a lot more than mean tweets. And Bona, you know, I recall it wasn't that long ago that you attended and were on stage at a CPAC conference and basically had to be escorted out uh, for your own safety because of the very angry audience that you encountered there. I had a similar experience when Trump was still running at Colorado Christian University. They sponsored a summit called the Western Conservative Summit. My husband was in the back of the room with his cane ready to defend me because he literally thought they were going to attack me. I mean, we laugh about it, but look at what happened just in the last few weeks. We had several swatting incidents where uh, the police were sent to the uh, home of Jack Smith, where they had been told that Jack Smith had shot his wife. You know, let's just... Think about that for a minute. If there had not been federal marshals who had intervened and corrected the story, you might have had police barging in, guns drawn. It could have been really, really tragic. And virtually everyone who takes on Trump in a very public way, anyone who has any authority, has been attacked in this way. We've listened this week as E. Jean Carroll has uh, again been on the stand testifying about not just her assault, but the defaming that she's been subject to. And they read, uh, you know, some of the uh, tweets and, and messages that had been sent to her, including one, you know, suggesting she put a gun in her mouth and pulled the trigger. I mean, this is vile. We have not heard one word from Donald Trump saying, stop it. You know, it is a repeat of what we saw uh, throughout the last campaign, what we saw on January 6th, where when his own vice president uh, was being threatened, had to be uh, shuttled out of the Capitol and into the basement and being protected there, where instead of saying, you know, stop it and go home, uh, et cetera, he basically was egging on the hang mic pants. So this is really dangerous. And I think Zach's piece was very informative. I think one of the statistics that he mentioned was that in FEC filings, that members of Congress are now spending five times as much on personal security as they did in the past. Is that right, Zach? I think that was- 500%. 500%. So, 500%, so, so five, more Yeah, even, five yeah. times, yeah. Um, this used to be the party of law and order. This used to be the party of, you know, wanting to see streets be calm and there be civil, you know, civility no longer. And it's Donald Trump who has led the way. And it, given our own history as a nation, we've had a lot of violence in our history, not just, you know, now, but, but in the past, we've had people assassinated, the presidents assassinated. It is really worrisome that uh, this is happening. Yeah. It's honestly, Will, it's it's heartbreaking to see the country descend to this level. Um, one of the other things in Zach's piece is about the uh, local officials, the school boards, you know, the local people who are subjected to these awful and vile threats. And I don't think this was in your piece, Zach, but it, it's been reported elsewhere, you know, that it's getting harder and harder to get people to serve as election officials now because they're worried about the atmosphere and 
you know, even for things like, do you want to run for your local school board and subject yourself to that kind of abuse? If that's the new mood in America, if that's what you have to endure, it's corroding our whole civic life, not just at the presidential level. Right. First of all, Zach's piece is outstanding, and I recommend everyone go to Vox and read this. He captures not just the violence itself, but there's the additional factor of the intimidation caused by the violence. So you don't actually have to have a violent event for, I mean, we, there was a violent event, January 6th, right? That showed that, we're hey, we're serious, we, we might do this to you. Then you have the somewhat invisible force field that's created by that, which intimidates Republican officials. And we know, because we've heard it from Liz Cheney and Mitt Romney and others, that there were members of Congress who voted not to impeach or not to convict Donald Trump because they were afraid for their personal safety. So the violence is already having an effect. One thing I just want to add to this conversation, because I've been looking at it for the last week, is polling data on the extent of support for violence inside the Republican Party. We need to understand just how seriously pathological the Republican base has become. And on this question of violence, here's three questions from the last couple of weeks, polling by CBS News and by the Washington Post University of Maryland. A question, thinking about people who forced their way into the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, would you describe their actions? And that poll asked some questions. One of them is, would you describe this as patriotism? Now, remember, the question is not about people protesting. The question is literally about people who forced their way into the Capitol. And everyone saw on TV how violent that was. 51% of Republicans said they described that as patriotism. 59%, 59, nearly 60% of Republicans described it as defending freedom. They were asked whether they would support or oppose pardons, again, for people who, quote, forced their way into the U.S. Capitol. 66% of Republicans supported pardons for those, for those people. Again, not peaceful protesters, for the violence. The Washington Post poll said, do you think that the storming of the United States Capitol on January 6th was an attack on democracy that should never be forgotten, or that too much is being made of the storming of the United States Capitol? And it is time to move on. 72% of Republicans said it's time to move on. Only 24% said it was an attack on democracy that should not be forgotten. So this is not just an isolated band of ruffians in this party. This is a party-wide, base-wide pathology. It is a threat to the United States. It is a threat to our institutions. We, we mustn't dismiss it as a fringe problem. And this is a, I think this is, Republicans love to talk about cultural sickness. This is a deep cultural sickness that is now spread throughout the Republican base. And we're going to have to find a way to at least hold this party at bay and keep it out of power until we can gradually, I don't know a better word than domesticate it. Or have the worst of them die off. Because if you also look at those polls, the numbers who are over the age of 65 who have these really harsh views is much higher than the younger ones. But Bill, I'd like to pose something to you. I've never been um, convinced that the people can be relied upon to have the right opinions about most important basic things. Like I remember looking at, at public opinion data going back to the 40s and 50s, and there are some really horrifying responses, you know. Do you think we should, you know, if somebody, you know, speaks out against the war effort, should they be in prison? Yes. 75%, you know, that kind of thing. So the people are, as the founders understood, they're moved by their passions, and sometimes they're not all that well-educated or they're not all exactly constitutional scholars. But in this case, with the collapse of the Republican Party, what you've had is um, the, the elites have been co-opted. So what you see now is that, like, when Ted Cruz made the mistake of saying, on Fox that uh, the January 6th people were insurrectionists. Tucker Carlson brought him, called him on the carpet and made him retract and say, no, no, I, I, I didn't mean it. I please, Mr. Carlson, forgive me, I, you know? And so he bowed and scraped. And, and it's because the leadership, which is supposed to guide public opinion into more wholesome channels when it gets out of hand, not only is that not happening, but the elites in the Republican Party are rushing to be at the head of the uh, circus here. What do you think? As I've said more than once, 
There is a reason why JFK's book, Profiles and Courage, is not very long. (laughs) Uh, But it does call to mind a saying of Winston Churchill's. And that is to say, courage is the principal virtue because it's the one that makes all the others possible. Oh, gosh, I was thinking of a different one. That's that's a great one. But you know what I was thinking of? Confidence in democracy cannot survive a 10-minute conversation with the average voter. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Alexander Hamilton couldn't have said it any better. (laughs) Yeah, look, uh, what we're looking at from the standpoint of sort of the template of the virtues is the total absence of courage where it's most needed. Yeah. And I don't know how to give people like the current leaders of the Republican Party, who are actually followers and not leaders, I don't know how to give them spinal transplants. Mm -hmm. I'm not that good a surgeon. (laughs) Nobody is. And uh, so I think we have to face the fact that we can wring our hands about this all we want. But the only way of stemming the flood is to defeat Donald Trump in November. Nothing else really matters in the end. Now, it's interesting to speculate, just to give my mind something better to think about, what the situation will look like in the Republican Party if Donald Trump goes down to defeat at the hands of Joe Biden for the second time in a row. Joe Biden is not widely regarded as the strongest president we've ever had. He's not widely regarded as the most politically impregnable president we've ever had. Losing to Biden under these circumstances would be a sign of something profoundly wrong, not only with the man who lost to him, but also the party that decided that he was their champion. And that defeat were to occur might set in motion forces that are now hard to anticipate or even imagine. That's the good news. Here is here is the bad news. And I say this with some reluctance out of respect to you and Linda in particular. I do not believe that Donald Trump conjured these forces into existence in 2015 and 2016. I believe that he was turning something that was already there latently into something real and powerful in American politics. And when historians tell the story of this episode, I think that they're going to trace you know, a kind of an invisible hollowing out of the moral core of the Republican Party that began long before Donald Trump ever appeared on the scene. I know I'm being provocative here, but the idea that he simply invented the new Republican Party is inconsistent with all of human history, as I understand it. Well, I mean, um, and the record that we have, right? Okay, like so this. Go, go ahead, Zach. You you join. I I think we I think we should pursue this. Go ahead. You sure? You think that? Jump in. <laughs> I I want to jump in on Bill's side before there's a uh, there's a counteroffensive, so to speak. Okay. Um, <laughs> and also because it's a nice opportunity to plug my book, The Reactionary Spirit, which is coming out <laughs> uh, in the summer, where I make an argument very similar to the one that that Bill just outlined. Right? Is that the the building blocks for Trumpism were was there? Right. It, it, you know, it it had been there for a long time, ever since the change in the demographics in the two parties where the former supporters of the Solid South um, and the sort of racially resentful white voters moved into the Republican Party. And we really started to see it emerge after Barack Obama won the 2008 election. Right. You can trace that moment, the rise of the Tea Party, the spread of state level voting restrictions in a way that we hadn't seen in decades across Republican controlled states. I mean, all of that is a reaction to the Obama victory and the changes to American society that it represented. So I I don't think that Trump conjured this out of the air. I also, though, am skeptical that Trump losing again will create an opportunity to fix it, in part because we've had this conversation before, right? We had it in 2020 and we had it in 2022. And as Linda pointed out uh, in the chat, I don't know, uh, listeners, you certainly can't see this, but the Republicans and Trump certainly will just say it was rigged again. Right. And and it'll work. And how do you break the fever 
of a people who refuse to even believe that medicine exists, let alone take it. Right. And I, and I don't mean to say that ordinary Republicans are, are past the point of reason or, or you know, just are, are fundamentally different than regular American voters of all kinds. Right. I, I don't want to pathologize people, but there is something something that has happened to like sort of in an interplay between voters and elites where the voters crave a certain kind of politics that Trump offers. And then the elites offer them that, which then further entrenches them in this set of ideas, beliefs, norms, culture even that has arisen surrounding Trump. And I just have no idea what breaks the feedback loop if the past three elections, right, which have all been disastrous for Trumpism, haven't. Why would 2024 be different? I, I'm just not sure that it would be. There, there has to be some kind of, I feel like, external shock, right? Something unanticipatable that breaks the pathway that we're on right now. That's what's happened in other countries that have experienced this kind of democratic rot. I just don't know what that would be, almost by by definition, right? Because it's a, it's a black swan event that can't be anticipated. Okay, Linda? Uh, I am uh, very pessimistic. And I do agree that this goes back a long time. I do agree that it goes back really to the Southern stretch. It goes back to the uh, period of Richard Nixon. Um, I think those of us Reaganite uh, Republicans who supported Reagan in his policies uh, sometimes did not want to dig too deeply uh, into why some of those policies were supported by some of Reagan's voters. Um, and I'm thinking specifically of uh, topics related to race. That's an area that I've spent you know, my entire career on. The reason I oppose uh, racial preferences and affirmative action are very different, I suspect, than the reasons that uh, some of the opponents uh, of those racial preferences would articulate if uh, allowed to. I do think that one of the problems is that, you know, we always talk in America about how great it would be if everybody voted. Let's make sure 100% of people vote. Eh, no, not really. It's not always so good. I think what we saw with Donald Trump is he brought a lot of people into the political process who had not been politically active. They were less educated, less informed, did not follow the news. I mean, as Zach suggested, these are people who, you know, in the Scopes monkey trial would probably uh, not been on the side of the monkey. And, you know, it's, it's something we don't like to talk about. But having a population that is not uh, well-grounded in civics, that doesn't understand our history and our institutions, and that are more driven by reality TV than anything. I mean, that's one of the reasons that Trump got the nomination, not one of, one of the primary reasons that Trump got the nomination in the first place, is he had a lot of these people who had never thought about uh, politics before. And now, Politics has become, you know, their gladiator show. This is, you know, what they do to entertain themselves. And it's not been good for America. Okay, so I guess it falls to me to defend the honor of conservatism, which I will do. So my brother's a doctor and uh, and he says, you know, everything is always very clear when you look through the retrospectoscope. And look, in real time, a few years back, there was a lot of evidence of rot within the Democratic coalition, right? I mean, there was hypocrisy, for example, you know, they were very feminist, but they were willing to overlook Bill Clinton's behavior toward women because it was politically convenient. And they were, um, they indulged in a lot of conspiracy theories about, you know, the, 20, the 2004 election was rigged by the voting machines. Uh, what was the name of the machine? Linda, Diebold. do you remember? Diebold. Thank Diebold. you, Zach. That's right. So there was a Diebold conspiracy thing that was very popular on the left. And, you know, the left was also guilty of tremendous moral hypocrisy in terms of overlooking the depredations of vicious regimes, provided that they were hostile to the United States. And so you could imagine that if, say, a very radical showman of the left had succeeded like he did in Venezuela, you know, and gotten elected, that all of those forces would have been empowered and they might have even come to dominate the Democratic Party. And it could have you could have looked back and said, you see, it was there all the time. 
Chavez didn't invent it. It was always there. Well, I think there's always those tendencies. I'm not trying to deny that they're there. I agree with Linda that they were there and it was, uh, there were things, even in the people that I admired, like Reagan, you know, he did, you know, go to Bob Jones uh, University or whatever, you know, he did a little bit of that and it wasn't good. But I do think that it's too easy to say it had to happen this way because I don't think it did. I think the party had many more. It was mostly full of normies. And then Trump came along and he kind of stripped away the barriers and the normal inhibitions that most people have. And suddenly people fell in line. And of course, it coincided with the arrival of Twitter and and social media, which gave a huge voice to the previously voiceless and influence and so forth to Trump that wasn't possible before. There were gatekeepers in the media who were now, there. you could do an end run. So anyway, I think that it's, it's complicated, but it's too easy to just point to, yeah, I mean, that definitely there were racists and ugly xenophobes and so on within the Republican coalition, but they were very, they were a small part of it until quite recently. And now the extremes have become the establishment. Zach. Yeah, I mean, the, we had a little bit of a test of, of a similar theory, I think, during the, the 2016 and 2020 Bernie Sanders boomlets, which is not to equate Sanders and Trump because they're not similar figures, right? Sanders is much more coloring within the lines, always a self-identified socialist. His policies are, are nothing like, say, an Hugo Chavez, right? Much more like a sort of European social democrat. But there were these berserk forces in the Sanders coalition Right. And they had a chance to be ascendant in the Democratic Party. And the answer is they they, they did it. Right. Not just because Sanders lost, but because the, the majority, the huge majority of the institutional Democratic Party and the party's voter base lined up against them. The sort of like Twitter radicals who will go into your mentions anytime you say something that isn't horribly critical of Israel on the Internet. Right. Like those folks exist in the Democratic Party that have exactly that position of sympathizing with violent extremists who are anti-American abroad. Right. We've seen more of them and heard more of them since the Israel-Hamas war than we have in in quite some time. Yeah. If I could just interrupt real quick to just say right now there's a sudden enthusiasm for the Houthis among (laughs) a bunch of lefties who've never heard of the Houthis. But, you know, if they're firing on American ships, they must must be great. But what's notable to me about those people is they don't exist in the Democratic Party as an institutional factor, whereas you had in the Republican Party prior to Trump just on immigration, I can name people like Steve King and Tom Tancredo, who wielded power inside the party and represented a significant faction there. You had, I mean, we can go back further. We can talk about Bat Buchanan. Uh, we can talk about how Sam Francis, despite being a terrible racist, got something right about where the Republican Party's base would lie in the future in the 90s, right? It's there, there's there's an asymmetry in the two parties in the way that they were founded. There we can speculate what the reasons for that might be. Um, To me, I think it has to do something with the um, breadth of the Democratic base, right? It's very diverse. Yeah. Uh, Not just, I'm not just talking in racial terms here. No, no, Just terms, sociological terms. Yeah. In a way that's not true for the Republican party. And I think that creates a very different sense of identity and and party connection. And and so all all this is to say, right, authoritarianism and extremism and anti-democratic politics on the left is historically throughout the world a huge problem right there's no denying despite myself being so sort of I'm, I'm a liberal first but I'm also on the left right I I know that my side has a problem with this but in the US specifically that just has not historically been a problem in the way that right-wing extremism and anti-democratic politics have been. It's different in different countries. But specifically in the modern Democratic Party, especially, it's just the the, the coalition of forces, the arrangement, the distribution of power is just not there uh, to power that kind of politics. Okay. May I incorporate by reference, as the lawyers say, uh, what Zach just said, and bring it right up to the present day. Less than 48 hours ago, I think the Republican candidate around whom right-minded people, including people on this show, would like to rally, namely Nikki Haley, said, and I quote, America has never been a racist country. Right. What does that tell you? That's Uh, a rhetorical question. What does that tell you, Mona? 
Yeah, that 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 she feels that the Republican base wants to hear that and needs to hear, and that's really uh, it's a measure of where we are. It, she wouldn't have said anything remotely like that in 2012. She wouldn't. No Republican would have. Well, well, maybe Tom Tancredo. You, but, yeah. you, you know what, Mona? You've now launched me on a research <laughs> because I will bet you that I can unearth. Nikki Haley or someone very much like Nikki Haley in 2012 saying exactly that. Well, okay. Um, maybe you're right, but it would have been not as a presidential candidate, you know, as a as a governor, as a local, you know, whatever. Anyway. Can, can we make this a bet, a bet between the two of you, like with some steaks, like a nice bottle of wine or something? <laughs> uh, I don't, I'm not that confident. <laughs> <laughs> That's the function of bets, to smoke out. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, it's it's true. All right. Well, we have to move on. So before we do, let me just say a word about Magic Spoon. So growing up, cereal is one of the greatest parts of being a kid. But as you get older, you have to watch your calories and your carbs. And Magic Spoon has the amazing flavors that you love, but high protein and less sugar. So if you order from Magic Spoon, you will get a variety pack, which has four flavors. They have cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. Now, this pack has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and 45 grams of net carbs. So only 140 calories per serving. High protein, zero sugar, it's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free. So you cannot go wrong. Go to magicspoon.com slash beg to differ to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use your promo code beg to differ at checkout to save $5 on your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident that you will like their product that it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. Remember, start the new year off right with a delicious bowl of high-protein cereal at Magic Spoon dot com slash beg to differ and use the code beg to differ to save five dollars. We thank Magic Spoon for sponsoring this podcast. All right. Well, there was another topic I wanted to get to, but we'll have to save that for next week. And I'm not telling. So you have to tune in again next week. But now we come to our highlight or low light of the week. Will Salatin, start with you. Okay, uh, so we've been talking here about uh, violence and authoritarianism and other pathologies that are going on in the Republican Party. People are reluctant to use the term fascism. And one reason why they're reluctant is when we talk about fascism, we tend to think about regimes that have not just had a strong leader, but have done terrible atrocities that have targeted minorities, for example. Um, we are already there as a country, um, not only do we have a history, obviously, of slavery and discrimin racial discrimination and other and you know internment and stuff like that. Recall, we, we were we were discussing earlier about Republican elites and the Republican base and what has held back this this tide of of intolerance and and violence in the Republican Party. I think it has been Republican elites. But in 2015, Donald Trump stood. Uh, in front of an audience in South Carolina in, in December of 2015, and he proposed a ban on all Muslims coming to America. And he looked around the audience and he got favorable response from this. And so he proceeded with this, with this horrific idea. That idea is now, is now returning. Donald Trump is on the campaign trail right now. He has in Iowa, in New Hampshire, he just said it again on Wednesday. He is, at, first of all, attacking Nikki Haley for having opposed that ban. Nikki Haley took a position against banning Muslims. She said that was un-American and unconstitutional, but she supported a ban on travel from certain countries that had a history of terrorism. The Trump campaign doesn't care. They've cited the interviews in which she said that, and they're attacking her for it. Furthermore, when Donald Trump says this on the campaign trail and in the ads, he is, he is referring not just to Nikki Haley, but to what he repeatedly calls Barack Hussein Obama, and he hits the, the Hussein really hard, okay? So he's on the campaign trail three or four times. He says Barack Hussein Obama really loud, just to make it really clear. He has also gone at, he's also retweeting stuff about Nikki Haley and whether she's eligible to, to serve as president because her parents are immigrants. So we are so seeing- So is his mother. Yeah, right. 
So we are seeing we are seeing a return to the explicit bigotry and the Islamophobia and the proposals for a kind of fascist agenda that we saw in 2015. I view this as a major concern, and I want to keep an eye on it as we go forward, especially if Nikki Haley becomes a threat to Donald Trump, because I believe that these bigoted attacks on her and from Trump himself personally will increase. Yep. Thank you for that. Linda. Well, I am going to give a highlight this week. Uh, it was one that warmed my heart, really, and it came from Substack, from Chris Eliza's uh, Substack newsletter, So What? He talked about uh, the Iowa votes, and he talked about Asa Hutchinson, who did, in fact, withdraw after the uh, Iowa caucus. Uh, Asa Hutchinson only got 191 votes. And when he withdrew, apparently the DNC thought it would be really a good idea to tweet a kind of nasty response. And despite the uh, nasty comments by the DNC, the White House chief of staff actually called Asa Hutchinson and apologized for the DNC. And it shows what happens when you have the right people with the right kind of attitude uh, in office. As regular listeners of this show may recall, Asa Hutchinson was my original favorite uh, in in, uh, the uh, Republican primary. He is a decent guy, an experienced guy, a good congressman, a good governor, um, actually headed up uh, immigration and, and naturalization. So he knows something about some of the issues. And I just thought that was the right thing to do. And uh, I think the DNC has got egg on its face for it. But it's nice to see that Joe Biden is willing to reach across the aisle and do the right thing. Yeah. If only decency were really valued. Okay. <laughs> Bill, Bill Galston. Well, I should say, first of all, if you put a bunch of kids with Twitter fingers in charge of communications for a political party. This is the sort of expletive deleted you're going to get. If I had more confidence in the nation's grownups, I would plead for them to return to um, positions of authority, but I'm not sure I want to. <laughs> Oops. <go. laughs> okay. yeah. yeah. But at any rate, I actually have a highlight. And the reasons it's a highlight is going to take a little bit of explaining, but not too long, I promise you. Leon Wieseltier who in days gone by was the longtime sort of back of the magazine editor for the New Republic when it was really at its peak of political and cultural influence, a few years ago started a new journal called Liberties. Uh, It's a quarterly, and for your subscription, you get the equivalent of a book of essays every quarter, hundreds and hundreds of pages. It is really quite interesting. And what I want to do is recommend in the most recent issue a review by a Princeton professor by the name of David Bell of the not only most recent book, but also the career of one Samuel Moyne, you know, a law professor and historian at Harvard who recently published a book saying that it's all the liberals' fault, the rise of Trumpism, et cetera, because their ambitions were too modest. And so they gave the American people nothing to hope for, nothing to vote for. And of course, that surrendered the political initiative to not only the conservatives, but ultimately the Trumpians. This thesis is, to put it mildly, preposterous. But uh, it's generated a great deal of interest. And Mr. Bell's review of the book and of the sequence of books leading up to it, I think, is the definitive refutation of this entire way of thinking. And if you don't think it's definitive, wait for my forthcoming book. (laughs) All right. We have two book plugs this podcast. Zach. So I also have a highlight. I guess I figured this was such a gloomy conversation that it might be nice to to pull something good happening in the world. And, and I mean the world, because this is a story that might not probably you're you're probably not familiar with, and it might not mean a lot to you, but I do want to explain why it why it matters. Um, which is that for the first time in 50 years, a country in sub-Saharan Africa has been declared malaria-free. That's a quote from the BBC. Cape Verde has succeeded in eradicating malaria. Uh this is 
I mean, if you don't know anything about malaria or you've just sort of like vaguely heard of it as a disease, it's one of the greatest killers of humanity ever to exist, right? It kills something like 580,000 people per year in Africa alone on the continent of Africa. Um, and that was, that was 2022 data. And for a country to eradicate it is a sign of, of really, I think, the most one of the most important stories of the 20th century and early 21st century, which is a rapid improvement in the quality of life based primarily on strengthening of state capacity, science, scientific progress, economic growth, improvements in our understanding of public health and how to distribute public health benefits around the world. And that malaria could be eradicated and there's, you know, there's a malaria vaccine that's being worked on to, to ramp up to distribution. There's all these breakthroughs happening that most of us don't think about or hear about every day, but have the potential to save millions of lives over the course of their existence. To me, that's a remarkable testament, uh, not just to the power of science and human ingenuity and to the policymakers in Cape Verde, all, all credit to them, but also to an international system that allows these kinds of benefits of knowledge, technology, and prosperity to be widely shared around the world. While there's still extraordinary, unfathomable global inequality, right? If you've ever been to a non-developed country, you'll know what real poverty looks like. But the world is in a lot of ways getting better. And so when Trump gives his stump speech about how everything is awful and terrible and what have these people done for anyone lately, I mean, just, just look at the numbers on life expectancy, mortality, uh, and, and global well-being, and you'll see that the world is serving an awful lot of people really, really, really well. And there's a lot that's worth preserving about the world as it exists today. Thank you for that. Also can chime in and recommend for people who would like a sense of perspective about how life has improved, Stephen Pinker's book, Enlightenment Now, and uh, many of his books, you know, trace that things are getting better. Not inexorably, though. We have to be on our guard. All right. Um, well, I also have highlights. So this must be some sort of record. Uh, I think this is a record for Beg to Differ. <laughs> um, but uh, I noticed this morning over breakfast, my husband told me that Peter Shickley had passed away. Peter Shickley, for those who don't know, he created an alter ego called PDQ Bach. I have a real soft spot for all humorous, for musical humor, like, you know, Tom Lehrer, one of my all-time favorites. But Peter Shickley, who was, and this is a highlight. Yes, he died, but he had a long and wonderful life. So that's why it's a highlight. Um, and, and this is an appreciation. Um, such hilarious bits that he would do that were send-ups of classical music's pomposity. And some of them were just in jokes. He's a real composer. I mean, he does serious music. And in fact, his obit in the New York Times reflects that he he said he almost felt um, that that his real person, Peter Shickley, was almost jealous of P.D.Q. Bach. P.D.Q. Bach won five Grammys. Peter Shickley won one <laughs> and uh, for his serious work. But in any event, he did some great musical humor, concerto for horn and hard art, the hard art was a bunch of automats that, that were in New York and Philadelphia back in the 1960s, I think. I actually never saw one, but apparently you'd go in and you'd put a nickel in and the, you'd slide out your food. And anyway, he, <laughs> I mean, he just had this antic kind of madcap humor. And I think we'll close with a clip from a piece that he did uh, that was calling Beethoven's Fifth like a baseball game. He asked the announcers talking about possibly trading, you know, that cellist and, you know, um, anyway, it's, it was just wonderful and hilarious and made the world a better place. So rest in peace, Peter Shickley. Thank you for all the humor. And for anybody who's not exposed to it, it's all out there on YouTube. So enjoy. And they're off with a four note theme. I don't know whether it's slow or fast, because it keeps stopping, folks. Doesn't seem to be able to get off the ground. But it does look like we're coming up to a cadence here. Oh, the violins didn't cut off. They weren't watching. Surprised they weren't called for holding. There's that four-note theme again and another stop. 
Just cannot seem to get this off the ground. Tell me, Giff, do you think you would call that four-note idea a theme or a motif? Well, Pete, the technical term would be a motif that he uses to build a theme. Thanks for setting me straight on that, Giff. Okay, we're heading into the second theme section here. We can be looking for a little modulation out of the field. Why did you hear that, Giff? Somebody in that horn section really flubbed that note. That has got to be one of the worst fumbles I've ever witnessed in all my days. And with that, I want to thank our panel, our guests, Zach Beecham, and our regulars, and our producer, Jim Swift, as well as our sound engineer, Jonathan Seary. And Beg to Differ will return next week as every week. 